And then there's the more optimistic vision, the more humane vision, the one that aligns mission and deeds, that allows for humans and non-humans to peacefully coexist, indeed to universally thrive, to build, in the end, a truly humane society. It is a vision in which our SPCAs and humane societies are not inessential, but indispensable. Hi, we're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. This is the fifth and final part of our podcast series discussing the history of animal sheltering and the no-kill movement in the United States. It's a story that has many highs and many lows. And because we fear we are in danger of entering another low, that it was important to revisit the story Nathan tells in his book Redemption and the documentary film of the same name, adding an addendum as to what has happened since their release, including many remarkable and wonderful things until recently, as a new and dangerous threat to the no-kill movement has since emerged. That threat, which goes by the name Human Animal Support Services, or Community Sheltering, and is being peddled by groups like Best Friends Animal Society and Austin Pets Alive, sees shelters as dispensable, urges them to limit access and transparency by closing their doors, and as we argued in part four of this podcast series, would undo many of the gains of the last 30 years. We hope that by reminding everyone of the history of the animal protection movement, that we could take away important, indeed crucial lessons, not only in order to stave off this emerging threat, but provide a roadmap to an even better and brighter future for animals. To do that, we explained how it was that our nation's humane societies and SPCAs, which were founded to protect animals, first started killing them and the tragic aftermath of that decision. We talked about how it was that starting in the 1990s, the no-kill movement began to right that wrong and achieve such tremendous results that we have since reduced killing by 90%. And today we will discuss the many other accomplishments across a broad range of issues and for a wide range of species that could be ours if we do not abandon those values that have so far guided our success. At the end of our last podcast, Part 4, we discussed the need to codify our humane expectations for animal shelters into law not only because this would prevent the kind of backsliding we are witnessing in those communities that are now following the detrimental advice of groups like Austin Pets Alive and Best Friends, but as a means of promoting the embrace of no-kill programs and services at those shelters which to this day remain hostile to replacing killing with proven and humane alternatives. In this, our final podcast of this series, we offer a more encompassing vision for the future, a future where our local SPCAs, humane societies, and other animal shelters play an even more essential role. It is a world that could exist beyond the fight for no-kill, a world in which our humane societies and SPCAs are no longer saddled by the burden of killing and all the moral compromises that killing demands, and are instead free to return to the broader mission that once inspired their founders, to be a voice for all of the animals in their community, regardless of species or manner of harm. The metaphor we offer is what we call spokes on a wheel, In this model, the local SPCA functions as the hub in the center of a wheel with different spokes leading to different animals and different animal issues in the community. So regardless of whether a spoke leads to homeless dogs and cats who need a temporary way station to a better life, renters with animals struggling to find housing, horses who toil pulling carriages for tourists and then are sold for slaughter at the end of their lives of forced labor, wild animals whose habitat is about to be dissected by a new freeway, or other animals who face other challenges, those spokes lead back to the local humane organization. And while the vision we lay out is certainly aspirational, it is not without real-world precedent. Not only do the ideas we discuss harken back to the type of animal advocacy first practiced by Henry Berg, the founder of the nation's first SPCA and the father of the American Humane Movement, but the kind of work Nathan did when he worked for both the San Francisco SPCA and later the Tompkins County SPCA in New York, where he created the first no-kill community. So Nathan, before we get to what amounts to our hopes and dreams for the future, let's first set the stage. As we discussed in the second podcast in which we talked about our own history in the animal protection movement, it was shortly after we met as young animal rights activists in our early 20s that we decided that we would focus our attention on the no-kill movement not only because we wanted to save millions of companion animals every year, but because we wanted, in essence, to help save these organizations from themselves or to rescue them from what they had become. 
we understood that to get them to be able to reach their full potential for all animals in a community, they first needed to stop causing harm themselves. In other words, we wanted to get them to follow the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. It should go without saying that is the first place to start, and that means embrace the programs and services of the no-kill equation that allow you to increase adoptions, reduce and eliminate the, the killing of all but irremediably suffering animals, and be a model shelter in the dictionary sense of the word. So that these organizations would embrace no-kill and would achieve no-kill for companion animals in their community that should go without saying. Right. Let's be a little specific in terms of who we know are some of the animals that are still um, falling through the cracks in the safety net and how those organizations would begin to create what could become national models for how to deal with particular groups of animals that are still at risk. Right. So historically, for example, any dog that displayed what was lumped in this broad category as behavior problems were killed under the exaggerated claim that these animals needed to be killed in order to protect public safety. But what we have learned as shelters since Tompkins County achieved a no-kill community and some of the progress that we've made since then is that that category, this kind of catch-all behavior category, covered a whole range of behaviors that uh, of dogs who were just being killed and as shelter, local shelters stopped killing those animals, our understanding of dog behavior went through the roof. You mean because they were actually kept alive long enough to study and come to better understand and what was rehabilitate, going on with them. right? Yeah. And so, like even back in Tompkins, I remember one dog that spent eight years of her life on the end of one of those thick logging chains. This dog was essentially feral, globally undersocialized. Where if this had been virtually any other community in the country, this dog was killed. And instead, we said. We know what the behavior looks like. How do we overcome it? And it took a while with this dog, but we were eventually able to figure out what the dog's triggers were, how to overcome them so that she could go on to become a beloved and cherished family companion, right? And the more our movement has done that since, the more successful we have become across a wide range of behavior issues to the point that when you look at the wide spectrum of behavior, first of all, what we've uncovered is what we thought of were behavior problems were in fact just incompatibilities with the particular home that the dog was with. So the vast majority uh, of dogs who are turned in for quote unquote behavior problems are actually totally normal. They don't really need any intervention. There was just some behavior that the people in the home the dog was in didn't like. So these are normal dogs. One of the group of dogs that are lumped into that category to allow shelters to kill them while pretending that they are protecting public safety are big dogs who had high energy and bad manners. And uh, a lot of dogs that are killed for failing these uniformly unreliable temperament tests that are fatally flawed are just simply juvenile dogs going through Adolescent. adolescence. And so a lot of the dogs that shelters are killing under this rubric of behavior are normal. And as the former parent of teenagers, <laughs> it could be a rough time. Yeah, You just got to get through it. And the good news is with dogs, that period is it's a lot, Much shorter. Yeah. <laughs> they go through it a lot quicker. And when you look at dogs who maybe came from, which is a tiny percentage, who maybe uh, came from severe abuse or were chained in the backyard so that they're globally under-socialized or maybe have had incidents of aggression and you've had dog behaviorists and organizations focus on rehabilitating those, the vast majority were turned around very quickly in under a month. And even a majority of those were sort of rehabilitated 
by being taken out of the shelter and being placed into foster care and being just shown love and kindness and patience and being taught limits. Most of those dogs were able to stay in homes with no further incidents. But the ones that did need more targeted care were able to be turned around very, very quickly. So that the number of dogs who might be seen as truly aggressive and pose a real and immediate danger is a very small number, and those can be placed in a sanctuary environment with the understanding that sanctuaries aren't places where we give up on dogs. They're places where dogs are trained and periodically a snapshot is yeah, taken. Yeah, it certainly gives you a, yeah, a, just long, to see a what, long view right. on what might happen over time. Correct. You know? What is it that they need? How can we make them feel safe? How can we make the people that interact with them safe? It might include uh, drug therapy or, or, or other therapies, but those are the kinds of animals that under this fiction that we're protecting public safety, this whole swath of normal and treatable dogs are still being put to death, including in communities that self-classify as no-kill. Okay. And so what about other animals that are still groups, that, communities that say that they're no-kill, but what, what other groups are still at risk that we need to be, as a movement, really talking about more? But hopefully people that would be listening to this that might be running a shelter would be taking a second look at those animals and expanding their safety net of care. We talk a lot in this movement about quote-unquote behavior dogs, but we don't really talk a lot about behavior cats, and that's both good and bad. It's bad because cats who are unsocial with people, what we used to call feral, who are used to living outdoors, who are thriving outdoors, who don't necessarily want to live in a house, there's a simple answer to that, and that is return them to their habitats, right? But for cats who uh, live inside and are used to living inside, but have what shelters consider behavior problems, those cats are still being killed in shelters that, again, self-classify as no These are animals that are like overstimulation biters. Yes. So going back to Tom. Yeah, because this is actually when I think about how you handled overstimulation biters was... Do you remember? I mean, I think there was even a, one time that you did an ad where you talked about this overstimulation fighter who, when you adopted him, you get a free stick. You get a free petting stick, <laughs> right? It was a back scratcher because this cat didn't want to be touched by I people. Mean, and you always said that, that actually the public has a very, very high tolerance for behavior issues in cats. People will adopt cats it's with a, catitude. Yes, right? catitude. And is, they don't pose the same risk. The one cat we had that had pretty bad overstimulation problems was Sarah, and she liked to go under our coffee table. Well, first of all, when we brought her home, we thought she was feral. We thought she was and feral, we were rele- we, but she just kept coming back. We were going to release her in our backyard. In our backyard yeah. where we lived in And Ithaca. she did not want to Yeah, she was, always, we, she was always be at the door. And so we found out it wasn't that she was feral. It was that she was just sort of ornery. And she didn't like anybody going near her, and so she would sit under our coffee table and we would we learned we, we learned kind of wide berth around the coffee table. The and kid, sometimes you'd, you'd forget. You'd be yeah, distracted. You'd be distracting. A paw would come out and get you. <laughs> yeah. and, and, but do you, I mean, when she, you know, she lived quite a long life with us. But when she did die, it we had to unlearn cutting a wide swath around right. the coffee table. Long that probably she took died. like months, months to yeah, just unlearn that, that behavior. But that's the thing. It's a different story with cats. Correct. So twenty years ago in Tompkins County. I eliminated the behavior category for cats. We didn't even have it and because no cats are being killed for behavior because they could be adopted out, as we saw with Sarah, who we adopted, and the, the cat we adopted with, with the free backstrap scratcher. Most of the problems resolve in the home by just taking them out of the stressful shelter environment. And even if it doesn't resolve on its own outside the shelter environment, the the care could be more focused and the recovery could be quicker outside the shelter environment. So there's no reason to delay getting cats who are labeled aggressive, fractious, feral from getting out of the shelter right away. So when I say we eliminated the behavior category, what I mean by that is we eliminated the killing of any cats for quote unquote behavior issues. And then there's the animals that also have like Pamlocopenia or FELV or FIV positive yeah, cats. Cat- and in some communities, those animals are still being killed, even if they're asymptomatic. Uh, well, the cats that are a ch- challenge, especially if they're symptomatic, a challenge to treat in a shelter environment. As you said, I think 
panleukopenia is probably the archetypal example because if shelters don't do a really good job managing it, they can put the rest of the population at risk. But they can I, be managed. Yes. Yeah. And so, so for example, like again, going back to Tompkins County, at the time there was this really virulent strain of Khaleesi virus that was sweeping across the Northeast. It was pushing through Ohio and it was coming into New York. And all the surrounding shelters in our area and throughout the region were reporting incredibly high numbers of cats coming down with it and dying. And we never got it. I mean, we had individual cases, but without killing those cats by treating them in the shelter through employing rigorous cleaning, disinfection, handling protocols, we were able to contain it. So I always told people that individual cases of, say, Khaleesi virus or panleukopenia or parvovirus in dogs are inevitable in sheltering. But epidemics through your shelter, that's always the result of sloppiness, dirt, not being clean, not being rigorous in terms of your yeah, of I remember Tompkins was scrupulously clean. The first thing that always hit you when you came in is there was always a faint whiff of bleach in the air. Not yeah. to the point where it was threatening Noxious, to the animals. But you could just but, smell it. Yeah, yeah. it was it clean, was very clean, spotless, and and to the point where we were so thoughtful in terms of intake vaccination, in terms of cleaning, in terms of disinfection, that we could afford to, and, and I'm going to use the wrong word, but just to prove the point, but to cheat where it mattered most. So when you walk into most shelters, for example, they will tell you, don't touch the cats because that's how you spread disease. Or wash your hands scrupulously between handling each individual cat. My staff had to do that, but we allowed the public to cheat because we know that cuddling cats, touching cats, playing with cats and dogs, going into that's the how kennels, they get, That's how they get home. That's, that's how, how they people get fall in love yeah. with them and that's right. how they get adopted. But it also keeps them from getting sick because it reduces their stress level. A, a cat who is not touched, who is not petted, who is not groomed, who is not played with, is going to be stressed. And the difference between a cat that breaks with URI and one that doesn't often comes down to stress. So those conditions that are historically been a challenge to treat in a shelter environment can be treated. We did it 20 years ago, and there's no reason why every SPCA can't do it today. Instead, they're still being killed, and also even in communities that classify as no-kill. And you can also find homes for those animals. Absolutely. People that isn't a bar for some people to adopt an animal that may have tested positive or something. Right. I think one of the mistakes that shelters make in that regard is thinking that, and the reason they think this is because this is the kind of the stuff that HSUS used to say, that you want shelters to be sources where people come in and they find only quote unquote quality animals, whatever the hell that meant. You know, in their mind, it meant really young dogs and cats that were a variety of colors. So if, if the fifth black cat came in when there were already four in the shelter, they would tell you to kill that one. But that's not how the American public thinks. No, I mean, quality to them doesn't mean. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think means... that word has any meaning yeah, fact, to the it, American because public. Because if you think back on the the columns that you did that got the most response from the public in Tompkins was when you broke people's hearts with these, you know, people these sad, these, these healthcare save lives. Yeah, uh, these these hard luck stories, you know, those were the ones that got people's coming, you know, banging down the, the door. Yeah, you know? we 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 it's found such a dim view of humanity. It is such a dim view of humanity and a dim view of, of animals. So one of the mistakes that shelters make in service to this idea that all animals that leave their shelter should be healthy is these animals, a lot of the times, not just behavior, but with medical conditions, a lot of the problems we see in shelters are self-limiting, meaning they resolve on their own. And they resolve on their own quicker in a home environment. So uh, a cat with URI can be adopted with antibiotics or... Cat with ringworm, you can, people can treat that themselves. In I mean, their home, the only thing you have to do is be honest. Beyond yeah. that, the public is, will there, meet you wherever you want to go. Even bottle feeding kittens. I mean, that is a bond, as you know, with the way that cats tend to bond with the people that are bottle feeding them. We had a 
kitten that I I was the one that got up at two, three in the morning. I did the the midnight feedings. And then um, because you're a morning person and I'm not a morning person, you would take over in the the morning once the kitten got where he didn't need a a feeding in the middle of the night. Right. You took over right around the same time that the kitten was becoming more aware of his environment. And so while I had been up bleary eyed in the middle of the night feeding the cat that came to be our cat, Kenny. He didn't remember any of that. And he, he bonded came, with he, me. He, he bonded with you. And he used to, if, if I would be on the couch, he would walk, if he wanted to go somewhere, but he had to walk over both of us, like he would, the minute that he smelled you, he would walk over you, he'd instantly start purring. Right. And then it would stop right at me. <laughs> I, got, I got none of that. But I mean, you were so bonded to him and so close. And that was a bond that lasted his whole lifetime in a way that is pretty profound. Correct. And if shelters are a little bit nervous, start out by doing foster to adopt. But this notion that your job is to prevent human impulses when people are capable of the most noble impulses, and we should take advantage of that. And they want to also, people want to be a hero. I mean, if you if you have a hard luck case and you promote them, and that, that, that is... People want to feel like they're doing good. Right. Okay. And which also brings us to another group of animals that, you know, are still falling through the safety net in some communities, which is animals that are sick, but still have a, you know, have a... Well, who have conditions that cannot be cured, but still have good quality of life. Yes. And then they could go into a phosphorus program. Yeah. Like cats Where the people know that the cat they're caring for, cat or dog they're caring for is, has is dying, but has still has quality of life. Right. Like a cat with kidney disease might be far from end stage and can live a, a nice life with maintenance. And the family that adopts or does phosphorus care knows that at some point the cat is going to succumb. Well, yeah, that, at some point that the cat is, is going to succumb. But isn't, isn't that true of... Yeah, that's true. All animals, some just happen earlier than others. But but again, first, do no harm. Okay. So that's pretty much what we mean by when we say first, do no harm. The second thing is a uh, thing that most SPCAs and humane societies should be doing is to be a voice for the animals in your community whenever issues come up. And to seek out issues. Yeah, and to seek out issues so that you understand what is being talked about in your community. This has existed. This was one of the things that the San Francisco SPCA was very good at back when it was leading the no-kill movement before Tompkins. And one of the ways that they did that was that they were, well, first of all, things would occasionally come up in the news. Like, for instance, you told the story of City Hall saying that they were going to start using glue Glue traps traps. and rallying the troops to get them to agree to- uh, Humane road improvement. Humane road improvement. But the, the second thing is the San Francisco SPCA always sent representatives to city meetings like that. City court, commission meetings. City commission meetings. So planning commission, planning commission, environmental commission. commission. Correct. All these different agencies that in some way might be discussing something that might be relevant to animals. And, and the thing is, yeah, we, we went to all the different planning and commission yes, because, meetings. because, you know, you ran for a while. You ran the law and advocacy department at the San Francisco Correct. SPCA. Even those where they weren't ostensibly about animals. So, for example, the Animal Welfare Commission, of course, we're going to have a representative there. In fact, we had a seat on the commission. Uh, in our state capital, we always went to meetings where bills were being discussed that might impact the animals of the city and county of San Francisco. But we also went to commission and planning meetings that at first glance, you might not think are about animals. So for example, park and recreations, because they might be discussing access for for dogs. The city housing authority, because they might be discussing issues related to what type of pets people can have, or the feral cats that lived on the property the Commission on the Environment might be discussing animals that they don't like. So, for example, at one of those Environmental Commission meetings, they were talking about hiring someone to shoot these pigs that they deemed feral down at the reservoir. And the San Francisco SPCA was there and successfully fought against that. In another case, the National Park Service was going to kill the deer on Angel Island, which is a little island off of the city of San Francisco. Francisco It's in the Bay because they claimed that the deer, I can't recall, it's been a number of years, but 
deer that they liked that they claimed were native either had a white or a black oh, tail. Yeah, they're, and they're then the color other, of their tail yeah, is wrong. Yeah, the other one had a different Jesus colored Christ. tail, so they wanted to kill all of those. And we successfully fought the effort to kill those deer. So, and even like the transportation committee, because you're talking about potentially uh, public access of animals and public transportation that sometimes were or even you know the building animals. of new roads for example example but making sure that they're any you know not going through a wildlife corridor or if they are some way that you know you can protect the animals fences built up or a land bridge or something like that absolutely it's better to do it before it happens and have it part of the plan than find it later correct you know, like be aware of what's going on in your community correct and so the way SPCAs should think about it, it, the way we thought about it was the metaphor of you are the center of the wheel and every animal issue in your community is a spoke that leads to you, right? No matter what the issue is, if it affects animals. And especially with government, animals are impacted by the things that happen in your community simply by virtue of the fact that they live there too. And they will be subject to harm because they simply aren't considered when some action is t undertaken, such as building a road somewhere where animals live that they're going to then have to cross and potentially be hit by cars, so through neglect, or intentionally by regulations or outright bans where animals currently live and they don't want them there, like the, the pigs down at the San Francisco Reservoir. And so the SPCA should always be at the meetings in case these issues come up and should be both proactive in terms of getting these commissions to think about animals in terms of the decisions they make, how it might impact them. Getting them to think that if they had any questions, that you're the person that they should contact and you'll always be available to provide any kind of guidance that they might need. Yes. And that reminds me of a situation in San Francisco where the Environmental Commission was talking about rounding up and killing all the cats that made Golden Gate Park their home. And we're at the Environmental Commission meetings. We told them that we would not allow this to go forward without intense opposition. And within a very short period of time, they were going to hold a hearing on it. And when we showed up at the hearing, before they even brought the issue up to the agenda, they said we heard the shot across the bow. And it's no longer on the table. And so when going forward, whatever policies we come up with regarding the cats at Golden Gate Park, you will have a seat at the table and we will not go forward without any plan that doesn't meet the SPCA's approval for being humane. Yeah, I think when I think of what some things that have happened lately in San Francisco and how much I miss the voice that they used to be for the animals in that city, I think about a lot of the deforestation plans that are being pursued in San Francisco and absolutely nobody is speaking for the the birds, the wildlife, all the animals that call those forests that are being decimated their home. And the San Francisco SPCA certainly would have if it had been. Yeah, I can tell you. It happened 30 years ago. Yeah, at one time, it wouldn't have even gotten this far without the SPCA's involvement. And in fact, the SPCA would have been at the commission meetings when it was first suggested that it would be a good idea to cut down hundreds of thousands of trees in San Francisco. So the philosophy there was we looked around the city and county of San Francisco and we tried to build a safety net that protected all the animals that called the city their home. And if there were gaps in the safety net, we tried to fill those. If there were other organizations in the city that were taking care of some of those issues, we didn't duplicate their efforts. So, for example, there was an organization that provided free food for the companion animals of people who were homebound, for whatever reason, had mobility or other issues that they couldn't go out or were living in extreme poverty and couldn't afford pet food. There were organizations in the city that cared. That was their primary mandate. Right. It was like that. an offshoot of Meals on Wheels. So they brought food for the people. Oh, they brought food for the They animals. brought food for the animals. So we didn't provide that service because- Someone else was doing it. Somebody else was doing it. So how else can we fill gaps in the safety net? So while somebody else was providing free food, we could provide free veterinary care. 
We had a full-service veterinary hospital. Because you recognize here was an at-risk group, the animals of people that were economically disadvantaged. Correct. So we provided free veterinary care for full-service veterinary care at our animal hospital for the pets of the poor and the pets of, of homeless people. And so that's how SPCAs should think. Where are animals falling through the cracks? All animals. So far, we've talked largely about companion animals, although we mentioned the the pigs down at the reservoir, the mice at City Hall, and the deer on Angel Island. But just look around in your community, not just be reactive to what government is doing at a particular commission that comes up with some crackpot scheme that's going to harm animals or build a road through a wildlife corridor. Or cut down half a million trees. Or cut down half a million trees on Mount Sutro in San Francisco, but also be very, very proactive. Look around, take a snapshot of what the problems, what the challenges, where are animals falling through the cracks, where are they at risk, where are they dying, and come up with programs to fill those gaps. I I think that certainly that's one of the, because the San Francisco SBCA was everywhere and so proactive is one of the reasons, as we've talked about in prior podcasts, about why they were so incredibly popular in the city and why they were you know, flush with cash because people wanted to support them because they were such a powerful voice for animals. But I think also another interesting thing to consider about advocating for what the animals that people historically associate with SPCAs and humane societies, even though we would argue that it should be much broader, dogs and cats, is that some other things that SPCAs and humane societies should consider is expanding access of those animals. If if you can take the animals that Americans already consider members of the family and expand their rights in your community, you're helping lay the groundwork to protect all animals. Well, that's what you do call- Because we always call dogs and cats the gateway drug to animal rights. Right. So if you expand rights for dogs and cats, if you create opportunities, say, for example, to allow them in public transportation or in restaurants or- Pro-pet policy, encourage pet policies at work so dogs aren't home alone all day. Correct. You know, one of the things we did at the San Francisco SPCA is we had a grooming college. We had a doggy daycare center. We taught people how to do these skills for free so that they could open these pet pro pet businesses around the city. And they proliferated around the Bay Area. We gave them the free business plan. We'll teach you how to be a groomer. We'll give you a business plan on how to open a grooming facility. And we wanted to see this around the city. Well, also think about it. If you make it uh, successful, you increase the number of pet friendly housing and then you also increase the drawback some people might think, well, I'm not home all day. Um, I don't want the dog to be alone. And now there's, and now a, doggy there's a doggy daycare, daycare in the neighborhood. Now you right. have, you've also increased your adoption pool and that makes finding homes for animals even easier. Correct. Oh, well, and when we, so we talk a little bit about companion animals. There may be other companion animals like horses also could use the advocacy of the local Humane Society or SPCA. For instance, if you're in a city that has carriage horses. Right. So you should certainly be speaking out for those animals. Right. So we there were two challenges for horses in San Francisco back in the day. And one were the carriage horses and the second one were the police horses. And both of those were a challenge from the San Francisco SBCA standpoint that these horses were being used and suffered because of it. For example, the police horses at the end of their useful life to the police department, they were sold to what are called killer buyers. They were sold for slaughter. And we thought that was atrocious. And we thought that while it probably would have been better if the police department was not allowed to use horses, given that that was a fight that we didn't think we could win, that if they were going to have horses in the police department, they owed them a retirement for their lifetime of force duty. And it was profoundly inhumane to have horses in the police department. And when they're no longer of use to you, they're sent off to be killed. And that was a campaign that we eventually won. And the police department agreed to provide sanctuary care when they were too old to be police horses. And so all horses in San Francisco that come out of the police department have a retirement where they have an open field and they're cared for for the rest of their lives. And it was the example of that in contrast to carriage horses, where it served no real useful 
purpose. People would still come to San Francisco if there were no carriage horses. And eventually, the mismatch between the care we were providing the police horses and what was happening to the carriage horses forced the carriage industry to be abolished. And those are the kinds of things that we did in San Francisco and that people should be doing in their community. Right. So organizations, an SPCA or Humane Society, looking around, going to meetings and trying to figure out where are their issues where they should be outspoken is one thing. But there's another thing that Humane Societies and SPCA should be doing. And I think that this goes back to the San Francisco SPCA, where the Law and Advocacy Department also had for a while gone by another name, which was Ethical Studies. And, and that sort of encompassed the idea that the organization was always trying to push the envelope and question about what was humane and what they should be doing. Like, we should always be trying to be questioning, 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 where as a society we should be going, and therefore, as a humane society or SPCA, we should be advocating. And I think so, it's one thing to be reactive, but it's also incumbent upon these organizations to be proactive. Like, how do we make our building codes rodent-proof? How do we protect, make our windows in new buildings bird-friendly, like the city of Toronto did? Right. So the city of Toronto passed an ordinance that new buildings had to meet standards to prevent birds from crashing into them because the primary way birds die in urban environments is by crashing into windows. When they look at a window is they see the reflection of the environment behind them and they think it's a thoroughfare. What sometimes also happens is they see a window on the other side and think that they can fly. Through. They don't see the glass, so they Correct. think that they can fly through from one side to the other and then they hit the window. Imagine if cities everywhere started demanding particular building codes. Like Imagine the innovation that would happen in the glass industry that was part of all construction. Like It would lead to such incredible innovation in industries that make products that currently can be harmful to animals because now suddenly there's this huge demand for products that are more innovative and more humane. Correct. Until they become the standard and laws are passed to prevent the alternative. So the Department of Ethical Studies, which became the Law and Advocacy Department, functioned like a think tank. And we wrote position papers on various issues, again, in the quest to look around the community and see where animals were falling through the cracks so that when an issue, we either made the issue ripe or when the issue was brought to the fore because of some change in circumstance. So like the example in New York City, where as a result of the pandemic, restaurants were forced to close. And so rats that got sources of food in commercial areas, had to go find food elsewhere. And with more people at home and more garbage being produced, and unfortunately, during one period of garbage strike, rats started moving into residential areas. And some people started to take advantage of that by having dogs trained to kill rats, and they would go around communities. And I think it was the New York Times did a piece about it where it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, which was really tragic and disgusting. But the author wrote how it was incredibly brutal to watch because these rats suffered horrifically and they were literally torn apart. That's something you know Henry Berg would have Well, he did. He That was a sport in New York City in the 19th century, rat baiting, where dogs were put in an arena and rats were released and people bet on which dog could kill the most rats. Now we have that 150 years later and the ASPCA is totally silent. Not a word. No discussion of alternatives. No discussion of picking up the garbage, New York. You are the largest, most metropolitan city in the United States, once the center of the nation's wealth, and the probably considered the most, at one point, the most cosmopolitan city in the world. And you can't pick up your garbage? Like, the ASPCA should be leading the charge against these cruel practices. But instead, they don't say a word. I, and I think that one thing that you and I have always dreamed of when we imagine an SPCA being true to this mission would be pub- education campaigns to try to endear to the public a lot of the animals that are commensal animals, animals that live side by side with humans because they are smart species that have figured out that living next to humans is very beneficial. Right. Um, and a lot of them have, you know, they have a very bad reputation and trying to change the public perception as a way to increase pressure for not only the public to pursue humane methods when dealing with conflicts with wildlife, but also opening their eyes to 
the beauty around them. Like for instance, you and I, we always like pigeons. They're cute. You know, we didn't really have a personal relationship with a pigeon until Commander, the pigeon that we have. And we have two pigeons now. And when you live with a pigeon, you you come to know them as an individual, but you also start to see these behaviors that you have seen your whole life on the street with pigeons, but you didn't ever noticed before, the courting behaviors of pigeons. And it's very sweet because they're couples usually. They're a mated couple and it's a a courtship dance. And you see it now when you have pigeons and you go out into the world, you suddenly recognize this behavior and you're like, oh, there's a couple. And often if you see uh, just a pigeon by himself, it's because the other pigeon is probably sitting on a nest somewhere and there's little baby pigeons somewhere. And they are fiercely loyal to one another. So that is such a beautiful thing about pigeons that people don't recognize. And so imagine a, a, a public education campaign where you fl- explain to people what they're seeing, these behaviors that they're seeing in pigeons, what they are, like a Valentine's Day ad about pigeons. Like it would be- Or other animals that people see as pets when, you know, some campaigns such as wolves, pigeons, and very few humans mate for them. life. In so many ways, we have a couple of things to learn from them in terms of loyalty to their mates. And how male and female pigeons are very egalitarian in terms of sitting on the nest. Oh, that's and true. Raising the young. Yeah, I mean they they're they take turns. Durable. They take turns. Yeah. Right. So that's another thing that I think that Humane Society and SPCA should be doing is always be cognizant that they represent what should be the standard bearer of our treatment of animals and how we regard them. And you know, when you were at Tompkins and you had your your weekly column, you could write about whatever you wanted, and sometimes that column would be. You just musing on an issue maybe of national relevance relating to animals and giving your perspective on it. And it's that kind of thing where if you just saturate that in your community, you literally, I I think people love animals as a general rule, but I think that there are prejudices that we have against certain species and that if you can start to break those down and give people the gift of being able to see things differently. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I started seeing both in San Francisco and Tompkins, where people would say to me, I never thought of it that way before. And in fact, often we had government officials that we had trained them that, you know, on every issue affecting animals. We're going to always take the, it might not be the easiest path forward. In terms of some action that government or some private group wants to do, but it will be the most mutually beneficial path. It will be humane. And we often had government and other officials before we even got involved call and say, we want to know what the SPCA thinks before we get too far down the road and then have to change course. And I've had on more than one occasion a government official say to us, we don't always agree with the positions your organization takes, but we always respect them because we know you are motivated by doing right by animals. And we never cross the line of sacrificing animals to some human desire. However, we always try to create the win-win. And when people are motivated by doing the right thing and when people are willing to discuss and debate, you'd be surprised how often you can get – not always. No, I know. I think and we're that going to hold our guns. Really fascinating how, thing. how often you can get to a win-win. Another fascinating thing about that idea, though, also is that when you are out there and you are promoting ideas that you believe are at the vanguard of how people should be viewing a particular issue relating to animals – and you do get buy-in or you do see these people that you might you might be in SPCA or Humane Society finding out there's some horrible plan for animals in your community and, and it, you get that sinking feeling in your stomach like, oh, God, we got to fight this. And then to find out that actually they were open to compromise or that you have a whole bunch of people in the community that agree with you. It's another one of those things where you suddenly realize that you're not alone or your views on on humane issues are not as unique as you maybe thought that they were and that the this community that you're in has your back. You can go further than you thought maybe that you could because you've tested the waters and you found out that the water is fine. I have a great example for that because that's an excellent point. So as things have changed in the last 20 plus years since I was at the San Francisco SPCA, but I remember one issue we had was the SPCA at the time was built, you know, it's an organization that is almost as old as Henry Berg's ASPCA. It's the first SPCA west of the Rockies. And it was built 
like a lot of SPCAs, in an out-of-the-way area. At the time when I was working there, we were in the, I think it was called the Industrial Protection Zone near a giant cement factory and a huge printing operation and a, and a trucking operation. And like most communities, San Francisco started to undergo a kind of housing retail renaissance. And they were going to build a giant live-work space across the street from the San Francisco SPCA, which is a wonderful thing because that would bring in adopters, right? But we were also concerned given that we had hundreds of dog walkers roaming the neighborhood. We had people coming and going at all hours that residents would start to complain uh, about the barking and the noise and all the people and that they would start to seek putting curbs on our program. So, so as always, we attended the planning commission meetings regarding whether to rezone the industrial protection zone to allow mixed use, residential apartments, light retail spaces. And uh, we were concerned that this would, while it kind of excited about all the people who would be- And eventually the they nation, would be complaining about you guys. Correct. And, and how is that going to shake out? And we, so we objected initially because of some of those concerns and asked if we could, before the planning commission decided on whether to approve this, if we could hold a roundtable with the developers who wanted to build this facility and see if we can come up with a meeting of the minds. And we were willing to meet them halfway, and they did. We wanted the facility to only be approved if it was pet-friendly because that would mean more adoptions for SPCA Oh, and, and you, you know the people that live there would be more likely to not object pets. and love animals, <laughs> love animals right? and love us. And be like, I live across from the San Francisco right. SPCA. And so we discussed making the, the, and this was, I mean, apartments are pet friendly now, but back in the day, that was not Yeah, that was common. always a struggle, yeah. Right. And so the developer agreed to modify the plans to make it a pet friendly unit. And one of the design elements that they added on their own without a request was a, because it's a very urban area and there were no parks nearby, was a dog-friendly exercise area on the roof of the building, you know, well, a place where people can go up with their dogs and let their dogs socialize and play and run off leash because it would be walled off and it would be safe. And yeah, that's one of and those that's things. what they came back with. And it was, again, it was great. a win-win. And, and, and you weren't expecting that because, I mean, you maybe have a lot of calcified views. Of, oh, God, we got to deal with developers and they're only going to care about their bottom line. And they're only, you know, and, and then you go and you meet with them. And actually, people that have dogs work at these places. Right. They love dogs, too. And when you right? make the pitch that, one, we'll remove our opposition. Yeah. Two. Well, they, but they, they got you, creative on their own. Like, right. they came back with their proactive ideas, too. Right. We explained to them. We showed them the evidence that people, renters with dogs, don't move as often. They stay longer. They're more responsible. And uh, we actually helped them set reasonable guidelines, you know, that the animal, the dogs, for example, and cats had to be sterilized. They had to be vaccinated. And we even offered that if somebody rented in their building with an SPCA adopted pet and that pet caused damage above and beyond the security deposit, we would pay for it. And as you said, they came back completely pet friendly. And even went so far as to build a dog park. Right, but that's important, too, to talk about how the San Francisco SPCA also had a program to expand uh, housing, pet-friendly housing in the city. And they did that. They had a program, not just there, but that any landlord that... Opened their apartment or rental homes that or the San Francisco SPCA to an SPCA adopted pet, we would guarantee any damage above and beyond the security deposit. Yeah. And that radically increased the number of pet friendly units, units. available. Because I remember at that time living in San Francisco, how incredibly hard yeah, it was. Yeah. Doubled in some cases. Yeah. So very successful. So there's there's other areas too. And let's just- yeah, that, I mean, off. I think that falls under urban planning, like right. that kind of thing. Like always be aware of what's going on and expand, you know, create the infrastructure to make our- your your city or town as pet friendly and as think think as about possible. it you know 20 plus years ago we were at planning commission meetings and how many spcas out there now are attending all their different city commission meetings to make sure that the that animals are not excluded or harmed 
either intentionally through bans or other harmful conduct or through neglect because simply their needs were not considered whenever a commission was considering whether or not to approve a particular project that would have an impact on animals that maybe they're not even thinking about. I think what's exciting about that as well is sharing these things that you're doing as a organization in your community and pushing the envelope. Its ability to inspire people, as we talked about, the domino effect in other communities. But it also would inject this huge new energy that is desperately needed, I think, right now, because so many of the groups that had become no-kill champions and then got wealthy while they initially started, you know, innovating, and that was very exciting, it's very flat now. And it's not exciting. Like, going to a conference now, it's the same old thing they've been talking about now for 10 years, right? It's, it's Yeah, 10, 20 years. And so there are a lot more communities who are embracing the programs and services of the no-kill equation, and consequently, the number of animals being killed continues to go down every year. But in terms of the kind of innovation beyond dog and cat sheltering that we've been talking about here, you don't see that. You see it in some areas, but not to the extent that we had it in San Francisco, where one organization is integrating all these different areas and trying to build a truly humane society, regardless of the issue, regardless of which agency is at the forefront of the potential harm, and regardless of what species of animal, as long as they live in your community, you don't see an SPCA say we're going to be their champion, either both by preventing negative harms and proactively by extending positive benefits. And an organization embracing this sort of approach could transform the movement yet again. Right. Like by injecting excitement into the movement the way the first first wave of no-kill. Right. The, and This could be the second wave of no-kill. Correct. Some group. And so instead, you know, like they're trying to generate kind of a fake excitement. So like at a Best Friends conference, Best Friends will announce yet again that they're, we're going to be a no-kill nation in five years and that'll be exciting, right? But that's not really innovation in the sense that, one, they're not going to meet it or they're going to cheat their way uh, there well, they're we not discussed in they're not project. also in that discussion saying, and this is how we're going to get there. We're going to make sure that this program, these programs are implemented in every shelter those shelters that don't do it, we're going to pass legislation or, you know, there's no, it's just rhetoric, rhetoric, right? empty rhetoric. Or other conferences like Austin Pets Alive, where they're actually telling shelters to abdicate their responsibility by closing their doors to the neediest animals and turn them away. Yeah. So you're not getting the same level. I mean, imagine a conference that had discussions on all the issues that we've been talking about and what you should do as a humane society or an SPCA, it would be electrifying again and, and right. really inspire a lot of people. And we could go on, but but irrespective of that, there's more that we haven't even thought of that would become so obvious once you open one door, you're going to see two, three more doors. And slowly and incrementally, not only can you transform your own community, but to our larger point where we started this discussion of you promoting those things as a better way, especially in the era of social media and getting the attention and the support and the admiration and the accolades that would come with thinking outside the box and being a leader and talking about things that nobody else is talking about and doing things that nobody else is doing as a way to regain that excitement of what it is to work at a nonprofit organization, to actually champion a cause, to not take such a narrow definition handed down, quote unquote, on high from these organizations that have an incredibly vested interest to keep everybody wandering around in, in compliance with their status quo. While you write them checks. While you write them checks and defer to them. The no-kill movement was always a bottom-up, grassroots-led effort in opposition to the large national groups. And in terms of our experience with trying to reform these large organizations, you come to realize, or at least we've come to realize, that even looking at them as leaders is fundamentally wrong. They are large, no doubt. Right. I, I think that the issue was before we thought that they had become corrupted. And I, and I don't know to the extent to which we understood that, that the way that nonprofit organizations work, the way that the setup is of fundraising and the limelight that these organizations offer, all these things that are can really corrupt the mission and people that become associated with these organizations. I think that we didn't really understand how that was sort of baked into that model and that they could ever be reformed. 
Right. Once they get a headquarters, once they get a seat at the table, they start to identify more with people in power and they don't want to lose their insider position and they start making decisions based on fundraising and staying in the limelight and friendships that they they develop. So, And and then trying to portray those changes as somehow as innovation as as opposed to what it actually is, which is complete regression back to. Right. They become also, they become calcified. And it is true that small organizations always outperform large organizations because they are hungry, because they are nimble, because they are willing to place the big bets that movements have to place in order to make change, and especially a movement like this where the extent of animal exploitation and abuse in our society is so mind-boggling. Certainly, it's it's very frustrating that these organizations, given that they have the most influence, given that they have the most money, given that they have the most power, that they aren't leading the charge for change. But we can change them. But the way that we change them is by showing a better way and forcing them to have to embrace that new model. And in order to understand what it is exactly we're talking about by saying that the grassroots influences these large groups and gets them to change is what happened with TNR. These large organizations once were vicious critics of TNR to the point that they were writing public officials and asking feral cat advocates to be arrested and prosecuted for animal abandonment. And now they're singing a very different tune. So explain that to us. Well, I think that's the archetypal example of what we mean. Take the Humane Society of the United States, for example. When you and I first got into this movement, HSUS had the position that cats belonged indoors. If they were outdoors, they needed to be rounded up and brought to pounds where some of them, if they were social with people, would get adopted into homes. And if they were not social with people, if they were classified as feral, they should be killed. And and we're not going to have a change in TNR policy around the country because of HSUS. What's going to happen is the grassroots is going to push a non-lethal alternative to what was then HSUS's policy of round them all up and kill them. And as we discussed in prior podcasts in this series, pushing legislation where it would have been illegal to trap these cats for spay-neuter, and it would have only been legal to trap these cats for what they called proper disposal, as if they were nothing more than trash, or telling local prosecutors that these people are trapping, sterilizing, returning to their habitats, these cats, and even though they're providing food and water and shelter in the winter and monitoring them in case they need medical care, that they should be instead arrested and prosecuted for animal cruelty. By the way, and arguing in a very public statement that their position on feral cats would never change. Never, never, never. Yeah, yeah, so that's the vice president for companion animals at HSUS, who is the highest position person at HSUS for companion animals. And in 1995, Mark Pullhaus who was the vice president for Companion Animals, was asked, because we were starting to make headway as the grassroots, the San Francisco SPCA had initiated a TNR program citywide. Other SPCAs were starting to do that. Mark was asked if HSUS's position on feral cats would ever evolve to embrace sterilization and return to their habitats instead of round up and put to death. And he said, our position has always been and will always be, no, we'll never change. Never, never, no, and never. And 10 years later, they actually came out with a fairly progressive TNR program. Now, they didn't do it on their own. For 10 years, we were working around them. So kind of imagine them as a, a rock in the middle of the river. We're just flowing around them, right? And the more we flow around them and the more communities are embracing TNR and the more state governments are embracing TNR. So for example, when I was running a shelter in upstate New York, our local health department embraced TNR instead of roundup and killing. And as as more and more health departments did that, state health department regulations specifically exempted TNR programs from a whole host of other state mandates 
They exempted them because they knew that sterilization and as part of any TNR programs, rabies and other vaccinations actually improved the health of the cats and therefore improved public health overall. And as states were embracing TNR as health departments, local health departments across the country were embracing TNR, as municipalities across the country embraced TNR. We're all kind of this river going around the boulder, the the dead, regressive. And, and the boulder has eyes and is seeing everyone just right. going around them and is thinking, huh? But what happens right. when water <laughs> continues to go behind a boulder? It starts, it starts to, to wear away, wear away at it. In terms and, of leadership. Like, how can you lead a movement that you are- When you're fixed in one place and saying that you will never And they're just going down the road without you. So you have to evolve your position. And and that's exactly what HSUS said. They said that they are changing their position in light of the fact that the consensus of the movement had changed. Which is an admission that they are not leaders. Correct. How do we succeed in spite of them? And get them to the point where they have to embrace the things that we champion. And then like they make it, it makes them a little less harmful. Right, like HSUS and TNR. And so it's a phrase that people who have listened to all four prior sections of this podcast should now be familiar with. And it's kind of another takeaway of this podcast series is that our job is to change the climate of public opinion in which these groups have to operate. So when they get to the point where their self-imagined leadership position is being usurped because the consent, as HSUS says, the consensus of the animal welfare movement has changed because how can you even pretend to lead a movement when you're back here and everybody else is just no longer listening. Right, to you. is down. Or like when they came to the No Kill Conference and they saw how much things had changed and how much the grassroots was was embracing this, and how we were talking, mess- right, and how we were talking where no one was deferring to them, them as their leadership position anymore. And so, what we're asking the grassroots to do is to put away their checkbooks and roll up their sleeves and start working at the local level to create the kind of society that you want to see. And when enough local organizations do that, people are going to start looking at, again, just like no-kill, if they can do it in that community, why can't we do it here? And there's never a good answer to that question. So basically what we're saying is think globally, but act locally. Correct. And by taking the widest possible view of the debt and duty we owe animals, that is how our movement recaptures its roots. Carl Sagan once said, the visions we offer shape the future. It matters what those visions are. Often they become self-fulfilling prophecies. Dreams are maps. There was a time when no kill was just a hope. We dreamed it anyway. And because we did, it no longer is. We now have a solution to shelter killing, and it is not difficult, expensive, or beyond practical means to achieve. Unlike the adopt some and kill the rest form of animal sheltering that dominated in our country for over a century, needlessly claiming the lives of millions of animals every year, there are now no-kill communities placing over 99% of all animals entrusted to their care. As we continue our work to make pound killing a thing of the past in every American community, and then build upon that success to protect every animal, no matter the species, no matter the threat of harm, What will our map for the future look like? What roads will we take to do so? There are those groups like Best Friends and Austin Pets Alive that instead of promoting the proven cure to shelter killing, are now advising shelters to close their doors, to stop taking in homeless and lost dogs and cats, to stop adoptions, to settle for 90% and even then come by it dishonestly, to be open by appointment only, allowing neglect and abuse to remain hidden. In short, they are telling shelters to take in more money and do less with it, and in the process, derail the movement and thwart further progress, leaving animals to suffer whatever fate befalls them. And then there's the more optimistic vision, the more humane vision, the one that aligns mission and deeds, that allows for humans and non-humans to peacefully coexist, indeed to universally thrive to build, in the end, a truly humane society. 
It is a vision in which our SPCAs and humane societies are not inessential, but indispensable. To achieve this vision, we need only do what we have always done, what our success thus far has been dependent upon, to neither accept nor emulate the voices of defeatism, of corruption, of those who believe in their own celebrity and put themselves and the fundraising prerogatives of their organizations above the needs and lives of animals. The founder of our movement did it when his fledgling ASPCA stood up against those who would harm animals, including industries owned by peers and colleagues. We did it when the fledgling no-kill movement stood up to a calcified status quo reliant on killing. And we can do it again by rejecting the self-serving, cynical pronouncements by those we once counted among us who have since lost their way, and do it again we must. For if history teaches us anything about progress, it is this, that the future belongs to the dreamers, to those who defy convention, to those with the audacity to try something different, to those with the moral courage to proclaim that a naked emperor has no clothes, and to those who believe that tomorrow can always and must always be better than today. 150 years ago, an animal lover named Henry Berg stopped a man on the side of a road from beating his horse, and in that act of compassion found his life's true calling. At a time when public displays of cruelty to animals were so commonplace as to be unremarkable, he refused to believe in the inevitability of such harm, and he dared to expect and demand better. A century and a half later, we are all the inheritors of his legacy the kinder, gentler world he bequeathed us, and an unfinished road whose first stones he laid that lead us to an even brighter future. Berg's life work is now our work, and thanks to those in his lifetime who likewise admired and sought to emulate his example, thousands of humane societies and SPCAs, too long needlessly shrouded in darkness, already exist that could and should help us realize his broad, encompassing vision. It is the battle for the souls of these organizations that has defined our efforts for the last three decades. But having reclaimed them, having finally eliminated the harm to animals that they have themselves engaged in, a mission lost can once again be found. Freed of the stultifying myths and excuses necessary to quell the disconnect between noble word and their own harmful deeds, our humane societies and SPCAs become liberated from a prison of their own devising. Having laid down the heavy burden of killing, their hands become free to once again pick up and reignite Berg's now smoldering torch, a torch that once lit and exposed dark corners where abuse and neglect of animals thrives in obscurity or convention in every American community. Today, the primary challenge our movement faces to realize Berg's dream and to reach the end of the path he placed us upon is to ignore those who have devised new shackles for our imagination shackles designed to drag us backward or keep us rooted in a place that does not threaten their hegemony. But just as before, these shackles too are a mere illusion. An illusion that gives way the moment we choose to place one foot in front of the other in spite of them and continue on this journey, of which we have already come so far. If you want to learn more about these and other animal issues, visit NathanWinograd.com, AllAmericanVegan.com, NoKillAdvocacyCenter.org, and subscribe on Substack.